Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. For many people, uh, Christmas was over as a Friday. And uh, some people take down their decorations the day after. But in the seasons of the church year, we are in the season of Christmas tide, which begins on Christmas Day and ends on January 5th as we move toward the season of Epiphany. So it's really okay if we keep talking about Christmas for a while. And that means you shouldn't judge people who leave their Christmas decorations up way beyond New Year's, like I do. Well, <clears throat> we see in our gospel reading this morning that Joseph and Mary were certainly devout in their faith. They traveled to Jerusalem with the child Jesus to offer sacrifices as part of a, of a normal Jewish rite of purification. And, and this child who had come to them in divine ministry, uh, mystery and in earthly drama would be raised rightly and be grounded in the faith of the family's forebears. But before they can actually enact the ritual, they are diverted for just a bit by this old man named Simeon who had been waiting patiently his entire life for God to bring consolation to Israel, to release the nation from the burden that was imposed upon them and also was self-imposed. Rabbis in that time saw such consolation as something brought to Israel by a messianic figure one who would liberate Israel from her enemies. And the Holy Spirit had assured Simeon that he wouldn't die until he had seen this rescuer, this liberator, this Messiah. On the day of the family's visit to the temple in Jerusalem, the Spirit guides Simeon to them, and he praised God. And as he did that, he he also made some very startling claims. First, he suggested that this child would be a gift, not only to the people of Israel, but also to the Gentiles. Now, in the thinking of the day, there was only two groups of people in the world, the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people, the Jews and the Gentiles. So in other words, this child would be a gift to the world. Now, this was an astonishing thing to say, given that messiahs were generally thought to be strictly for the benefit of Israel. And second, Simeon claims that the path this child takes will be a rocky one. At his coming, he says, some in Israel will rise while others will fall, their very thoughts being exposed for what they really are. And and he says this to Mary, who, who probably was not overly excited to hear some rather challenging and maybe even disturbing news about her innocent little baby boy. You know, new parents don't usually speculate about the trouble their newly arrived children will have in life. They like to think that their children will be special and will avoid all those kinds of difficulties, which is generally not the case. Years ago, my my mother told me that when I was born, she and my father were gazing at my newborn wonderfulness and my mom asked my dad, Do you think he'll do all those awful and nasty things that little boys do? Now, my mom had two younger brothers, so she knew what might lie ahead for me. 
And my dad said, my dear, you'll never know. Now, this wasn't quite true since my mother had that kind of radar that made doing secret things almost impossible for a little kid. And I think some of you know what I'm talking about. And nevertheless, my, my mother clearly hoped for something better for me. And Mary perhaps hoped for something better for her son. Well, Simeon doesn't stop at talking about the impact that this child will have on the world. He gets personal with Mary and, and he tells her that a sword will pierce her soul because of all that will happen. It appears that Mary never forgot those words since she would be the primary source for this story. She would be reminded of what Simeon told her each time she experienced something sorrowful related to Jesus. Since the 14th century, there have been devotional prayers related to what are known as the seven sorrows of Mary. These are meditations on the times in the Gospels where Mary suffers the pain that only a mother can suffer. And while Protestants haven't generally continued that meditative practice, it's still common among Roman Catholics who sometimes refer to Mary as Our Lady of Sorrows. You may, you may have seen these pictures that, that show Mary with, with an exposed heart and seven small swords piercing that heart. And I know that the picture seems odd to us and even a bit gruesome, but once you know the story behind it, it makes some sense on a symbolic level. You see, the, the sorrows begin with what we heard this morning. They begin with Simeon's prophecy. And then they're followed by the flight into Egypt, the later losing of Jesus in Jerusalem when he was 12, the carrying of the cross, the crucifixion, the removal of Jesus from the cross, and finally, his burial in the tomb. Seven sorrows symbolized by seven swords. It's amazing to consider that the story of Jesus from start to finish is one that's certainly characterized by our Advent themes this year of expectation, hope, joy, and fulfillment, but it's also interwoven with suffering and sorrow. I think this is something very important for us to consider because the coming of Jesus is the appearance of God in the realities of human life. Jesus comes to us in real life. The imagery found in our biblical texts for this morning is, is rather striking. <clears throat> In our Old Testament text, Isaiah looks ahead to the restoration of Israel and talks about being robed in wedding garments rather than in the rags of exile. And in describing himself in such clothing, he makes himself a kind of representative of Israel who will one day enjoy liberation and vindication. It will be a celebratory time. But from the earliest days of the church, Christians have seen this as a messianic text, a text that pointed toward and looked forward to the coming of Jesus. In Jesus' resurrection, they came to understand that indeed Israel had been reborn as a new people, a people clothed in the victorious garments of the kingdom of God. At his birth and his infancy, there were people who realized that Jesus was someone special. There were the Magi, the, the wise men, who honored Jesus as 
the king of the Jews. And then there was King Herod, who, who feared Jesus for the same reason, that he might be the king of the Jews. And, and then there were shepherds who were invited by a, a band of angels to see this Messiah of Israel who had just been born. And we saw today Simeon and Anna, both at the end of their lives, who recognized this anointed one sent by God and saw him in the person of the baby that was held in Mary's arms. And then Jesus and his parents disappear into the backwater village of Nazareth, where we are told that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Once again, we see God doing his astonishing work and doing it in the world in ways that skirt the attention of the mighty and the powerful people at the time. Some of you know that raising children can be a wonderful experience, but it can also have some soul piercing along the way. Until he's 30 years old, we don't hear anything more about Jesus, except for the time when he was 12 and stayed in the temple while his parents traveled home, a, a, a kind of panicky experience that, that slipped the third sword right into Mary's heart. The rest of the piercings would come during the final three years of Jesus' life. You know, I have to admit, I, I'm not particularly comforted by the sorrows that Mary suffered. Um, but I am astonished that the story of our faith is about the God who, in the person of Jesus, enters into both the wonderful and the painful realities of human experience. In Jesus, God fully identifies with us, not as one who monitors us from a distance, but rather as one who is with us, among us, tasting suffering and death just as we do. The British actor and outspoken atheist Stephen Fry, in a 2015 interview in Ireland, was, was asked what he would say to God, assuming God actually existed, <clears throat> if he could confront God face to face. And without missing a beat, Fry immediately hurled accusations at God, asking him about the purpose of things like cancer in children, and all the general pain and suffering that's so abundant in the world. And, and then he said, why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Well, if we understood God to be that way, a God who would intentionally create a broken, painful, violent world and then seem to take joy in inflicting more pain on people just because he felt like it, then either atheism or terrified devotion would be our only possible responses. But that is not how we have come to understand God. We believe that God's intentions were for a good and peaceful and healthy world that has since gone awry. And we believe that this God has not been distant, but rather has always been close at hand, drawing people to his love and forgiveness. And we believe that in Jesus, we see the true face and character of God who comes to us in weakness and vulnerability, sharing 
our pain, sharing our life, sharing our suffering, and even our death. But who does so while bringing signs of the kingdom that is yet to be fulfilled. And in the resurrection of Jesus, which we will of course celebrate at Easter, we come to believe that pain and suffering and evil and sin and death do not have the last word. God in Jesus the Christ has the last word. And it's a word about the reconciliation and healing of the world. I suppose it's rather obvious to say that, that we think a lot about Jesus during the Christmas season. I know that I do. It's kind of the point, I guess. Um, but I also tend to think a lot about Mary during this time. You know, she gets a, quite a bit of airplay in the Gospel of Luke as she accepts her assignment as the mother to the Savior of the world. We don't really hear anything from Joseph, and, and it's assumed that he may have died early, leaving Mary a widow sometime before Jesus began his public ministry. I sometimes wonder if she just sort of took those words of Simeon that she heard in the temple on that day and sort of stuck them on the back burner of her mind during those years, only to find them moving forward, re-emerging as Jesus began to stir up the religious leaders with his words and his works. Maybe she thought that the, the relative peace she had enjoyed during Jesus' growing up years was here to stay, only to find it evaporate as Jesus went about his Heavenly Father's work in the public arena. But the piercings of sorrow would soon come because the work of God in and through Jesus would take place in the real world. You know, I believe in praying, asking God to heal people of sickness, of injury, other infirmities, and I, I think you probably do too. I also understand that people don't always find healing when we pray. And even when they do, it doesn't mean that suffering and death are now banished from that person's life. In the end, suffering and death have their way with us. That's just how it works, the human condition. Healing is always going to be temporary on this side of death. But every prayer that we pray, and every bit of love we extend to those who are suffering, are signs of something greater than the pain of the world. They are signs of the ultimate intentions of God for the world, signs of the fulfillment of God's kingdom when God will make all things right. In the first chapter of the book of Acts, we read about the gathering of the disciples just before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We're told that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there with all of them. Um, you know, I have to wonder if, if the dazzling events of recent days after the resurrection of Jesus had perhaps brought healing to her seven times pierced soul. The memory of those times of pain would not simply go away since they were now etched in Mary's personal history. They were part of her story, but her story was one that was undergirded by joy and now energized by hope. Pain, suffering, and death were very real events in her own history but they didn't have the final word on her life or on the life of the world. 
and they don't have the last word for us either. As we reflect during this season on the birth of Jesus and the story that is about to unfold, we can also reflect on our own experiences that have not only marked our personal histories, but that are also shaping our reality right now. Pain and suffering are real, but they continue to be unwelcome invaders into the world of God's intentions. In uh, October of 1966, in the Welsh mining village of Aberfan, a mountain of coal sludge collapsed and took the lives of 144 people, 116 of them children from a school that was buried by the collapse. Uh, if you happen to be watching the Netflix series, The Crown, in season three, they captured this time in a very poignant episode. It's very, very powerful to watch. But it really happened. And uh, when bodies had been recovered, and when the people gathered at the mass interment of the bodies of 81 of the village children who had been found, they sang together the hymn by Charles Wesley, Yesu, lover of my soul, which opens with these words, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven, guide, O receive my soul at last. In the midst of an unspeakable tragedy, the people, through their pain and their suffering and their tears, responded in worship. It wasn't an act that denied the reality of suffering and death. The, the coffins of their children lie there right before them. And it wasn't an act that sought to appease a capricious and mean-minded God, but instead looked ahead when all would be restored, when all tears would be wiped away. Their pain which was very real, was undergirded by the joy of knowing God and also by the hope of what God would bring in the future. In Jesus, the realities that we experience in this broken world are undergirded by joy and energized by hope. The prophet Isaiah claimed that Israel would one day be given a new name, a name that described Israel's rescue and liberation. In St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, he also offers a new name to the people of that early church when he writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. And in this time, and in this very real world, this space and time that we inhabit, we've been given a new name. A name that comes to us in the midst of the pain and suffering of our real world. 
and we are called the beloved children of the living God. Amen. In our weekly time together, <clears throat> we seek to speak what's real and what's truthful. We seek to speak words before God and to God that, that confess to God who we really are, our wounds and our failures, things that God already, already knows about us, but we come into agreement with God, the God who came to us in the weak and vulnerable baby Jesus, and we come and bring our weak and vulnerable selves. God. And so today in confession, we pray together. God of healing, God of wholeness, we bring our brokenness, our sinfulness, our fears and despair, and lay them at your feet. God of healing, God of wholeness, we hold out hearts and hands, minds and souls to feel your touch and know the peace that only you can bring. God of healing, God of wholeness, in this precious moment, in your presence and power, grant us faith and confidence that here, broken lives are made whole. Amen. And now, may the God of love and power forgive us and free us from our sins, heal and strengthen us by his spirit, and raise us to new life in Christ our Lord. Amen.